Our scripture reading is Colossians 3, 1 through 4. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. The word of the Lord. Last week, Hamas launched an attack on Israel that stunned the world, and it stunned us. And this morning, I just wanted to take a moment to reflect on the reality that we live in a world where there is instability. We live in a world where we long for peace, but peace seems so elusive. And as I have been reading and looking at this situation between Israel and Hamas, There is no human solution to what's happening there. We need to be praying as a congregation, as the people of God, that God would intercede in a unique and powerful way to bring about peace in a region that is so torn apart by complexities that I don't think any of us can fully wrap our minds around. So let's start that this morning as we pray together for the Middle East. Heavenly Father, it was heartbreaking to see the families torn apart, the lives lost, and that attack was not standing by itself. In the subsequent days, there have been attack and counterattack and lives lost on both sides. We know that death is the enemy. If death was not the enemy, you would not have sent your son to defeat it. So we pray that you would work in a miraculous, powerful way, that there might be peace in Israel. We pray for the leaders of Israel even now as they are preparing to launch a counteroffensive. We do not desire for there to be any more loss of life. We pray that the peace that we know that we have through your Son might be realized even now. In the absence of that peace, we long for your return. We pray for the day that the Son returns and all will be as it should be. Until that day comes, as your people, we cry out, longing for a foretaste of the peace that is to come. We pray this in the name of he who is the Prince of Peace, and the great reconciler, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's continue to pray throughout the week, prayerfully, not throughout the month, throughout the months of this conflict, that there would be peace, and that Jesus' name somehow through all this would be made known. This morning we're continuing our series in Colossians, and we're looking at Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, and there's a tone shift. There's something new happening. It's as though the Apostle Paul has been preparing us for where he is now about to go. But it's so easy to get distracted. Speaking of distractions, this is no ordinary ball. 
As you get to know me, you're going to find out one of the things about me is I am a dog person. Dogs are a gift from God. Cats are a test from the enemy. I we're getting a cat. For those of you who were wounded by that, I've, I've folded, I've relented, and a cat will be entering into our home soon. But dogs hold pride of place. And Whiskey, Whiskey is my dog. And she is a wonderful dog, and she is affectionate, and she's faithful, and she's present, and she just wants to lay there and be your couch potato friend until you say the word B-A-L-L, or she catches a glimpse of the green and the blue peeking out from underneath the sofa, then all else ends and all becomes ball. Ball is all. <laughs> this is her everything. I have never seen such singular focus in a creature than I've seen in whiskey when this ball comes into play. She just locks in and her eyes are unbreaking. And I try to get her to watch me and she'll just go, she was back. <laughs> She's back on that ball. It's so bad that when I take her outside and I'm playing with her and I'm throwing this ball, that's, this is partially my fault. She will run and she will get that, and she'll bring it back because this is her favorite thing. Did you know that when you throw that ball, it lands over there and I can bring it back to you and you can do it again for hours? One day we played for so long in the Texas summer heat, we went inside and she just collapsed in that, that mess of panting that is a dog after they've played too hard. And then we noticed the next day that she wasn't walking that great. Her back leg, which was injured when we first got her, was really inflamed and she was in a lot of pain, but she saw the ball and she wanted to play. It ended up to the point where we had to take her to the veterinarian and believe it or not, we took our dog to physical therapy for weeks so that she could exercise and recover because she had injured herself playing with this ball. Ball is all. What is the ball in your life? When, when your brain slips into neutral, where does it go? What, what are the obsessions that... Whoom, become the singular focus. I'm guessing it's going to be different for all of us through the room. For some, it's that Charles Schwab ticker, watching your retirement slowly dwindle away even though you're not spending a penny of it. For others, it's the Aggies or some other college football team, and you are desperate to see how they're going to do, or the Rangers or the Cowboys. Where does your brain go when it slips into neutral? What consumes your attention? This morning, as we're looking at this text from the Apostle Paul, the question that I want to be rolling around our minds is how can we protect our thoughts from getting carried away by our idols and our obsessions? So we're going to be looking at this text, and so far we've seen the Apostle Paul masterfully taking apart the false teachings of these teachers who are corrupting the young Christians in Colossae. And he does this by not directly attacking their teaching, but instead presenting the beauty of that which is true and showing how that which is true, Jesus Christ, his superiority above all things, his sufficiency, his completeness in all things, how any teaching that takes away from that has to be false. 
So we're picking up in chapter 3 as he's preparing to tell us. So if this is true, if, if Jesus is enough, if there's nothing that can be added to the work of Jesus Christ because he is fully sufficient, well, what does your life look like? How are you living? What do you do? So this morning, we're going to look at our identity. This is where Paul is zooming in as he's about to make this shift into the how then we should live as he starts talking about our identity. And we're going to look at the foundation of our identity, first of all. And then we're going to look at the nature of our identity. And then finally, we're going to get a beautiful picture of the hope that we have because of our identity. So picking up with Colossians 3, verse 1. So if you have been raised with Christ, let's just stop there for a second. What, what does that mean, since we have been raised with Christ? Well, he's completing a thought that he started in the previous chapter. In chapter 2, verse 20, he said, If you died with Christ to the elements of this world, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? And he tears apart that idol of legalism, that idea that we can save ourselves, that we can do it on our own. So if you died with Christ, he now continues this illustration. So you've died with Christ. So if you have been raised with Christ. In the Greek, it's just this little prepositional word that's appended to the beginning of these verbs. It's, it's as though we could translate it, if you co-died with Christ, and now you are co-raised with him. So it's in his dying we die. In his raising from death we raise as well. It's, it's our connection, our unity with him. If then you have been raised. This is also a passive this is so important when we consider what we talked about last week. There's nothing we can do. Jesus plus nothing equals enough for our salvation. Jesus plus my effort gives me something to boast about. So this verb being passive is, so if you have been raised, God is the one who raises you. You don't raise yourself. This is a work of the holy God of Scripture who raises us from this death of sin that we're going to talk about in a moment. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Now, this false teacher, we're going to talk more about him in a few weeks, but this false teacher, we get an impression, we get an idea from the type of words that Paul uses throughout this letter, the type of things that this false teacher was teaching. And now he says, seek the things that are above. Above is one of those magic words. Because these false teachers were talking about a secret knowledge. A secret knowledge that is above. A secret knowledge that is greater than. Jesus is great. But the secret knowledge is greater, and it is above even Jesus. This is the false teaching. And so Paul is now using these words intentionally. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is. So the false teachers are telling you to look above. Well, guess what's above? Jesus is above. 
There's nothing above him. He is above, seated at the right hand of God. This brings to mind uh, Psalm 110, verse 1. Uh, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. In Jewish tradition, God alone sits in the heavens. Only God sits. The angels, these powerful celestial beings in Hebrew tradition, these angels stand by the throne of God to attend to whatever it is that he needs or commands. They are standing and they are ready. Only God sits. So when Paul tells us here where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, he's not just telling you, uh, if you're looking for Jesus, let me tell you where he is geographically located. Find yourself the throne of God. No. This has nothing to do with place and has everything to do with person. By saying he is seated at the right hand of God, Paul is saying Jesus is God, equal to God, not less than. There is no above Jesus. Jesus is the highest. He is fully sufficient. So this empty philosophy that you can find something else above This is that Christless philosophy that Paul was talking about in Colossians 2. It's empty. There is nothing above him. He is fully sufficient. So the foundation, the foundation of our identity is in him with whom we have been raised, with him who is seated at the right hand of God because he himself is fully God. So therefore, what should we do? Verse 2. We should set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Set your minds. Romans 12.1 and Romans 12.1 and 2 talks to us about the renewing of our mind. That we would be able to discern that which is right, which is true, that which is perfect. Set your minds on the things that are above. And as Paul just demonstrated to us in verse 1, and that thing that is above that you should set your minds upon, it's Jesus. Jesus should eclipse everything else. We should have a singular focus with our eyes on Him. Let nothing distract us from the one in whom we find our identity. This is the foundation of our identity. Set your mind on those things, not the things that are on earth. And what Paul is not doing here is separating the physical from the spiritual. He's not doing that. What he's doing is he's looking at what these false teachers were talking about in chapter 2. And he's saying, no, these things that you can do, these things that you can add to the work of Christ, don't, don't be thinking about those. Don't have your mind on those things. These desires that you have, the distractions, the distractions that pull you away from Jesus. No. Have your eyes on things above Christ, not on those things that distract you from Him. Any practice that denies Jesus Christ as sovereign and sufficient is a thing that is below. It is a thing that should not be worth our attention these are the false teachings that still today, even though we're not in first century Colossae, even though we don't have this, 
this teacher going about and spewing these false thoughts, the temptations are still real. The distractions are still there. The obsessions and the idols pull at our heart and take our affections away from Jesus Christ to something other, something that's below him. We should have minds that are set on things above, not on earthly things. That's the foundation of our identity, who we are as those who have been co-raised in Christ. So what is the nature of this identity? When we even talk about identity, what do we mean? And today, the word identity has been hijacked to mean all sorts of different things. I'm going to be talking about a very specific aspect of what identity is and what it means. And it's the way that Paul is using it here in Colossians 3. He tells us in verse 3, Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature. I'm sorry, I just jumped ahead. Three, for you died. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. I almost started preaching next week's sermon. I don't think any of us were ready for that. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. What does that mean? I'm standing up here this morning. I'm looking at y'all sitting out there this morning. And most of you look very alive. Some of you look a little tired, and I apologize, and I'm thankful you have the opportunity to rest here. (laughs) But we're all alive, so what in the world does this mean? For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Well, remember that Colossians 2.20, if you died with Christ to the elements of this world. Okay, so this death has something to do with dying to the elements, the powers, the desires of this world. It might be helpful to jump back a little bit to Galatians chapter 2, verse 19. The Apostle Paul writes there, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ. Okay, so that same little three-letter Greek word soon that I mentioned, that co-died and co-rose. Here it is again, co-crucified. I have been co-crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So what does it mean in verse 3 of chapter 3? For you died and your life is hidden. Well, how have we died? For for those who are in Christ Jesus, we have died to the power of sin. You have heard it said that you have two natures, a a fallen nature and a redeemed nature. I say unto you that you have only one nature. You have a human nature. But within that human nature, there are two capacities. The capacity to do that which is right and the capacity to do that which is sinful. And when the Apostle Paul says here that we have died, he's talking about how we have died to that capacity that only allows us to do that which is sinful. Let me give you an illustration to maybe illustrate this a little bit. Um, How many of you remember World War II? 
Okay. How many of you have heard of World War II? Okay, all right. So in the Pacific Theater, there was a general who was very popular. His soldiers loved him. The American people loved him. Almost everybody loved this general. The people that he liberated certainly loved him. And his name was MacArthur. I, I, I just wanted to test to make sure that this illustration would land. So good. Okay. So General MacArthur was extremely popular with everyone except maybe one guy. And that one guy was President Truman. See, MacArthur was a strong-willed general, and his soldiers loved him. And one of the reasons his soldiers loved him is he led, and he led from in front. He didn't stay back and give orders and sit in his comfy chair and smoke that corn cob pipe. No, he led. There's a statue in the Philippines of him coming to liberate the, uh, the people of the Philippines, and he is in the front of that charge, leaning forward as the waves are crashing around his feet. He was well-loved, but he was stubborn. And what outranks a four-star general who's over the entire Pacific theater? The commander-in-chief, the president of the United States. And the president had a different idea about what needed to happen, and so he gave the orders and General MacArthur thought those orders were cute and did not follow those orders. So he was then removed as the one who was directing the Pacific Theater, and General Ridgway came in instead. Isn't this a fun history lesson? Y'all having a good time? So General Ridgway stepped in, and now he was the one in charge of the Pacific Theater. Now here comes the illustration. And for those of you with a military background, you need to just... Bear with me. I need to stretch this illustration to make it work. Y'all will know what I mean. So General MacArthur, he was in charge, but the moment that he was removed as the head of that theater, he was no longer in charge. General Ridgway was in charge. General Ridgway was the one who had the rights and authorities. So now in this hypothetical illustration, let's say that MacArthur's rights and privileges as a general are taken from him with this removal from office. So there's a moment where MacArthur and Ridgway are on that aircraft carrier together. Ridgway is in command. MacArthur has no authority. Well, what's going to happen when General MacArthur walks up to that private and says, son, I want you to go down to the supply sergeant and get me a box of grid squares. What is that private going to do? He's going to snap too. Yes, sir. And he's going to obey that order. Why? If General MacArthur has no authority, why is that private going to obey this order from this authority that no longer has any authority over him? I can think of several reasons. One, this private has been obeying the orders of this general for this entire tour of duty. He has been habituated to it. Two, that, that general has these shiny things on his shoulder. And when you're a private in the United States Army, and I'm speaking from personal experience at this point, when somebody with something shiny on their shoulder tells you to do something, you do said thing. He has been trained and habituated to respond to that voice. Three, he loves General MacArthur. He's known General MacArthur this entire time they've been over there. And he's been following him, and he has genuine affection for him. And so when the general asks him to do something, he's going to do it. MacArthur has no authority. 
yet the private would listen to his voice and obey those commands. You and I, we who are in Christ, we who have been saved by the work of the Son, we who by the help of the Holy Spirit, with the work of the Holy Spirit, have had our hearts regenerated, we have died. What have we died to? We have died to the law of sin and death. As Paul says in Romans, the law of sin and death has been broken. Yet, sometimes our old master will speak. And sometimes because we've been habituated to respond, we step into that sin. Sometimes if we're being honest with ourselves, because we love that voice, we listen to a master who has no authority over us. But we still listen. But what Paul is reminding us of this morning is we have died and our life is hidden. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. Well, what does that mean? Our life is hidden. These false teachers were talking about that hidden secret knowledge, that knowledge is above. No, you know what's hidden? What's hidden is you, and you are hidden in Christ. The riches and the fullness of who Christ is, you are the treasure, and you are with Christ. We are hidden with all the treasures in Christ. There's nothing more. There's nothing above. This is beyond association. This is beyond, oh, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Sure, I know him. No. This goes beyond association to identification. We are in Christ. It's not just knowledge. So what's the nature of this identity? It's at the heart of who you are as a Christian. And how easily we get distracted from the heart of who we are by something shiny. By something that appears in the moment to be more attractive than the eternal Son of God. So we saw that our foundation of our identity is rooted firmly in the work of the Son. We see that the nature of identity is something that's intrinsic, a work of the Holy Spirit in us that has made us not somebody who knows Jesus Christ, but who is hidden in Him. We are in Christ. Well, that should certainly give us hope. And that's exactly where Paul turns. Verse 4. When Christ, listen to this, when Christ, who is your life, not who gives you life, in whom there is life, although those, although those things are true, who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is the ultimate goal. For those whose identity is in Christ, for those who have been born again in Jesus, this is the ultimate goal, that one day, as we read in Philippians, we will be made like him. Not as far as divinity. We don't become gods, but we become like him in that sin is no longer even a conversation. It's not even a capacity that we possess anymore. It's not that we won't be allowed to sin anymore. It's that it won't even be in our nature to sin anymore. We would look at that thing that would be sinful and we'd go, that's foreign to me. 
That's not even a desire. It's not even a capacity. It's not something I'm restricted from doing. It would be like asking a salmon to, to fly to the top of Mount Kilimanjaro. It's not in its nature to do so. And when we are made like Christ, it will not be in our nature to sin. We will be incapable. Again, not because of restriction, but because of nature. And this is our hope. Our hope is what Paul is pointing to in this text. And our hope is in Christ alone. Not any esoteric experience, not any legalistic requirements. The only proper goal of the spiritual journey is Jesus. The only right way our heart should be tuned is to our affections for him. Even when Paul is calling us to act, which is where he is turning, as we're going to see in the next week's sermons, Paul is calling us to act, but when he calls us to act, his focus is still on the work of Christ. Not what you're going to do, on what Jesus has already done, but we act as a response. Our spiritual journey is what it is because of what God is doing in and through Jesus Christ, then and now and yet to come. There's no rank. There's no privilege. There's no better than in this journey. There's no elitism in the body of Christ. Those who are in Christ, those who have been buried with him in his baptism and raised to life, all things have been redeemed and reconciled in him. And there's equality. Not uniformity, but unity. And it's a beautiful picture of our hope. To downplay our future hope, what will one day be because of who we are in Christ, is to give us a false perception of what God is doing today. I am not going to cheapen what is happening in Israel by bringing it into this sermon as an illustration. But what we can say is that is not the way it is supposed to be. And we should pray that things would be as they are supposed to be, even though it may seem as though peace is impossible in the Middle East We've been praying this ever since 1948 when Israel was first established. All things are possible with God. And if the Son is not going to return soon, we as the people of God should be ministers of reconciliation and ambassadors for Christ, desperate to see peace achieved, not through our efforts, but through the work of God in a powerful way. So may we, as a people of God, Recognize that the focus on ourselves, the focus on what we do, the focus on our idols and our obsessions, they pull us away from who we are, who we truly are, as sons and daughters of the King, inheritors of what is to come. We are in Christ. May we be like whiskey with this ball, and have eyes for our Savior, and we see everything else through the lens of Jesus. Let nothing else take our thoughts and our hearts captive, but he who is worthy of our worship and our praise. Let's pray now. Heavenly Father, I confess that all too often, I allow distractions to get in the way of my worship and my love and my affection for the Son.
I pray for us as a church, Trinity Fellowship Church, that we would live up to our name. That we would be a church that puts God at the front. And that we would be the people that God has called us to be. That we would be the hands and feet of Jesus to a world that desperately needs to know him. May we love well. May we walk faithfully. May we never forget who we are. Not because of anything that we've done or anything that we can do, but because of everything that has been done for us. It is difficult to rest on an achievement that is not our own. But I am so thankful that you have saved us from ourselves, our own pride and arrogance to think that we are capable of doing this on our own. So we worship you in the precious name of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.